Well, this morning we continue uh, in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you remember, uh, we took a little pause over Christmas Eve to to talk about uh, the birth of Jesus and Christmas and to celebrate that. And now we pick up again with John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. We've said overall that John has written this account of Jesus' life. He tells us why. He says that he could have picked a thousand stories, that there's not room in all of the books of the world to adequately describe who Jesus is and all of the wonders that he did. But he's selected these signs, these stories, so that we might see Jesus believe in him and believing, taste and feel and experience life in his name. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, this is the the first of two sermons that we are going to be doing this week and next week on one chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11 that contains uh, the story of the raising of Lazarus. 
This is a, a full story. It's worth camping out on, spending a couple of weeks in. You know, the church uh, throughout history uh, has looked at this story as one that tells really the story of the whole gospel in miniature form. It is, in many ways, the climax of the first part of the Gospel of John. It's the last of the signs of Jesus. Remember, we've seen over and over that John has Jesus uh, performing these signs that point both to what happens in and of itself, but point beyond that to who Jesus is and what he comes to offer the world. And so we've seen him heal. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him uh, do these amazing, amazing miracles. And now it culminates in this most incredible display of Jesus' power, that he has power ultimately, even over death, power to raise the dead. It's a story that shows the way that Jesus is with his beloved, the way that Jesus is faithful to his friends. You know, Jesus had a special friendship, a special bond with Lazarus, with Mary and Martha, this group of three siblings that lived in Bethany, what we might consider a suburb outside of Jerusalem, just a couple of miles away. Jesus, through most of his earthly life, uh, didn't have a home. He was an itinerant teacher who, who traveled about. But whenever he was in need of a place to rest, a place to be at home, he went uh, to the home of this brother who lived with his two sisters in Bethany. They regularly hosted him in their home. They would have people come in to hear him teach. These were, as John uh, tells us in verse 5, when he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We can look to this story and see what does it mean to be friends of Jesus? What does it mean to be someone whom Jesus loves? We've seen uh, what Jesus says about the way that he is towards the people that he loves. Just in the, in the previous chapter, in John chapter 10, he says that he knows his own, his own know him, and that he holds them in such a way that no one can snatch them from his hand. He is such a faithful friend, a faithful lover, that no one can separate him from his friends. And we see that in this story as Jesus ministers to a bereaved family and to a dying and then a dead man, that Jesus is so faithful to those that he loves, that he's faithful throughout this life, through its ups and through its downs, He's faithful even to the depths of the grave that even death itself can't separate us from the friend uh, that we have in Christ. And so we want to look this morning in this first part of John 11 about what Jesus holds out for those that he loves, what it means to be his friends. And the first thing uh, that we see is kind of a hard truth, which is the fact that even Jesus' friends suffer and die, right? Just being in a relationship with Jesus, which is what Christianity is, what Christianity offers is being the beloved of Jesus, being his friends, that in this life, even Jesus' friends suffer and die. And that's a common part of the human experience that none of us gets away from, that none of us gets out of. The writer Anne Lamott uh, observed in one of her books in this great little witty observation, she said, in 100 years, all new people, right? If you think about it, in about 100 years, give or take, all of the people on this earth will have been turned over. The earth will keep going, but it'll be on just about an entirely new group of people. They will be living in Jacksonville, worshiping in this building, maybe living in your house. 
right? That we live in the midst of a world where, where part of what it means to be a person is to live under the shadow of death, to live with an awareness that our bodies are frail, that we break down and die. You know, Lazarus uh, was a good man. He was a pillar of the Bethany community. He was the kind of guy that when Jesus was in his house and he invited his neighbors to come and hear that hundreds of people came. He was an upstanding brother. He was someone who, who took care of his sisters, Mary and Martha, who uh, even though they were unmarried, he made a space for them in his home. He was a faithful uh, family man, a pillar of his community, a friend of Jesus. And yet, when we meet him in this story, he's dying and then he's dead. That being a good person, being a pillar of your community, being a righteous man or woman, doesn't exempt us from living in the midst of a dying world. For the good news of the gospel to be good news, it has to be good news for people who ultimately have to grapple with their mortality, with their death. Christianity is not, uh, at its core, a message of how to be a good person. Right? It's not, at its core, a message of how good people can become slightly better people. Right, it's not, some of you may have been told that it's a message about how you can be in a relationship with Jesus, and then all of the stuff of this life will go well for you, right? You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be wise, your, your life will, be, will abound in prosperity. But this story shows us that no, being good isn't good enough. Even being in a relationship with Jesus doesn't exempt you from suffering and death in this life. The gospel isn't a story about how to avoid suffering. It's not a story about how to improve your life and to be a good person. It is a story about how the dead get raised. It's the story about how we being dead in our sin and our trespasses, dead in our bodies, can experience real life, resurrection life, powerful life. But in this life, each of us suffers. You know, this seems to confuse initially Mary and Martha and Jesus' disciples, right? When they send people to Jesus, when he's away from Judea, they sent to him and say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Essentially, Jesus, do you know? Right? Do you know that Lazarus is sick, this man that you love so much, this man that's such a dear friend? Do you even know that he's sick? And yet you're here, miles off. Do you know that he's sick? Do you know that you're needed? Do you know? And then in verse five, one of these stranger sentences in the gospel. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right, this isn't what you expect. If you were to hear, Dave, come quick, your friend's in the hospital. Get, quick, get there quickly. And I was to say, yeah, I do love that person. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna chill for about two days, and then I'll go and visit him. You'd say, well, no, that doesn't, that doesn't quite seem to add up. Either you don't really love him, like you say that you do, or something else is at play. But Jesus leaves uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus there in the midst of their suffering, himself at a distance, himself removed from it, even though he loves them. And this is, quite simply, one of the deepest uh, problems that many of us wrestle with in the life of faith. 
right? If we're, if we're united to Jesus, if Jesus loves us, if we're his friends, then why when we suffer does he sometimes seem so far off? Why does he seem distant to us when we need him the most? When our bodies break down, when our marriages break down, when our jobs cause stress, where is Jesus in the midst of that? And how can he love us and be removed from us? Jesus uh, gives us a bit of a clue when he says uh, in verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Right? Jesus knew that the Father had a plan to glorify himself through the Son, not through healing Lazarus when he was sick, but raising Lazarus when he was dead. Right? Jesus had already displayed the glory of the Father through healing of sick people. And here he's saying, no, 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 there's another glory that's meant to be shown through in Lazarus' life. And it's not the glory of a healing. As much as that's probably what Lazarus would have wanted, as much as it's what Martha and Mary would have wanted, Jesus said, no, the glory that God is going to show through this man's life is different. It's bigger and more grand. It's the glory that can only come through seeing someone dead and hopeless in the tomb raised from death to life. You know, God's plan for each one of our lives is his own glory. Whether or not we are suffering or whether or not we are enjoying gladness, whether or not our bodies are sick or if they're healthy, whether our marriages are difficult and estranged or warm and intimate, The ultimate purpose of every one of our lives is that we would glorify God through them, whatever it is that he brings, whether in suffering or in abundance. And we, sadly, don't get to pick how and when and where we glorify God with our lives. We're called to be faithful. We're called to live our lives before him when we are suffering. But it's ultimately how our lives show forth God's glory is ultimately in the hands of Jesus. Sometimes it happens through healing in a miraculous way. Sometimes it works uh, through suffering in Jesus's, in a relationship with Jesus and giving him glory in the midst of it. One of our best contemporary witnesses uh, to this fact is a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny, was a, as a young woman, uh, was young and healthy and vibrant, And she went out for a swim on a summer's day in a lake, went for a dive off the high dive, broke her neck at 16 years old and has lived the rest of her life as a quadriplegic, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. In the midst of that, in the midst of a life uh, confined to a wheelchair, she has maintained, in the midst of great difficulty, a vibrant uh, faith in, in Christ. She's had a ministry of teaching and preaching and writing. She's done some amazing things with her life while confined to a wheelchair. And one of the things that she says from the midst of her chair of Jesus, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense my pain, the closer his embrace has been. Think about that. That's one thing uh, for me to say. It's another thing to see a woman uh, in a wheelchair that she's been in since, since she was 16. She's probably in her 50s now. To hear her say, I've cried out for Jesus to heal me. But instead of healing me, he's held me. 
He's held me close to himself. I've come to know him through my affliction, through my disability in ways that I never would have apart from it. And ultimately, that is going to be true of each of us. We may not see it yet. We may not see it clearly. But one day we'll look back, perhaps not until the perspective of glory, look back at our lives and say, no, no, it was through my affliction. It was through my struggles. It was through my addiction. It was through the difficult days of my marriage. It was through my unemployment that I came to know Jesus, came to be held by him in a way that I never would have known apart from my suffering. And so even friends of Jesus get sick and die. But we also see uh, in this chapter that for Jesus' friends, all suffering is temporary. All suffering for those who live their lives close to Jesus, who've acknowledged him as their savior, their rescuer, their redeemer and friend, that for them, all suffering is passing. It's temporary. This causes a lot of confusion uh, between Jesus and his disciples in this passage. First, he says to them in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. But then later in the chapter, he says to them, oh, Lazarus is dead. So which is it, Jesus? Is this, was Jesus wrong? He says that on the one hand, this illness does not lead to death. But then in the end, he acknowledges that, that Lazarus has died. Elsewhere in the chapter, he says that Lazarus is not dead, he's just sleeping which John loves to give these places where Jesus and his disciples miscommunicate. That the disciples just are always a little dense, a little slow. They don't quite understand what Jesus is saying. But here they can be, I think, a little bit forgiven for not understanding what he's saying. Jesus says he's just sleeping right before he announces that he's died. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is acknowledging that for his friends, suffering is always passing. Right, that this illness, notice what he says. He says this illness doesn't lead to death. Right, it does for a season, for a time in Lazarus' life. This illness does lead him to death. But death isn't the end point. It doesn't just lead to death. It leads through death to something else. Right, and then he explains what that means when he says that he's fallen asleep. That for Jesus' friends, death is no more threatening than sleep. Just as our natural physical bodies sleep in order to wake up refreshed and renewed and ready for the day, so in Christ, death merely grants a rest before we wake up into a renewed and restored body and a renewed and restored world. That for the friend of Jesus, death, suffering, is only ever temporary. Paul, the Apostle Paul says it this way, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right? Think about all that Paul suffered. Paul was a man who suffered beatings and shipwrecks. He was a man that, that was beat multiple times to within an inch of his life for his faith, was ultimately killed for his faith. And yet he says, all of the afflictions, all of the sufferings of this world are passing away. And they're not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed for the friends of Jesus, for the beloved of Jesus. You know, uh, it's true that believers, friends of Jesus, suffer in this life. 
But in Christ, the suffering of this life is the deepest suffering you will ever know. The pain that you endure in this life, the difficulty, the despair, this life is the darkest chapter of your story. From the perspective of heaven, even the good parts of this life will seem to pale in comparison with the glory of its fullness. Apart from Christ, if you're living this life on your own steam, apart from a, from a relationship with God through Christ, the good stuff of this life is as good as it will get. The glories of this world are as glorious as you'll taste. But the offer that the gospel holds out is that in Christ, the life that you suffer here, as full as it can be of suffering, will only ever be a temporary passing thing as you move towards glory. And not just a glorious life in heaven in the sweet by and by, but a remade glorious life in this body on this earth through Christ. And so Jesus uh, himself is aware of the fact that the suffering of this life is only ever passing. But when he gets to Bethany, when he comes to the home of Mary and Martha and they're now dead, brother Lazarus, Martha runs out to him at first and says, if you had been here, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right, there's a kind of faith that we see in Martha here, isn't there? She's aware of his power. She's aware of the fact that if he had been here, things could have gone so much differently for Lazarus. So there is a faith in the power of God operating in Jesus. But there's also, isn't there, more than a little bit of resentment. If you had been here, if you had done things differently, if you were treating your power more the way that I would want you to treat your power, my brother could have been spared. Where were you, Jesus? Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And that word, those words, the promise of resurrection, don't really seem to touch her heart in that moment. She says to him, I'll paraphrase, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yeah, Jesus, I get it. Right, I understand. One day, some distant future day, he's going to rise again. She shows that she understands. You know, it, it, at the time, in first century Israel, there was a debate over whether or not there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees said there was going to be. The, the Sadducees said, no, there wasn't going to be. And, and Mary, or Martha here shows herself to be on the right side of that biblical theological debate. That yes, there is, we, I do believe that there will be a resurrection. But it, it doesn't really comfort her there in the moment. It doesn't touch her uh, in the moment where she's grieving. It's a, it's a hope that's removed from her suffering. It's, a, it's the kind of hope that says, yeah, you know, I hope so. I think, I think you're right. I think someday maybe. Which, if we're honest, in the, in the shadow of death, when we mourn our loved ones, it can be hard, can it, to really believe what the scriptures say is true, to really believe that death isn't final, but that there is a resurrection, and to feel the comfort of that day in the future, in the midst of this one, that can be hard for us. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is uh, one of the great offers of hope in the gospel. That this is what it means when Jesus says that I hold my own and no one can take them from my hand. Not the suffering of this life, not the sin of their own heart, not even death can snatch you from my hand. Not because of you, not because of your goodness, your greatness, your righteousness, but because I am resurrection and I am life. I have the power within myself. This is why this this passage has been such a comfort to God's people. Uh, for so long. I actually realized, remembered this week, that this was the passage that I preached at my father's funeral. This was the passage that comforted me and my family as we stood by my father's grave, as we stood in the church and commended his soul to God and his body to the earth, was that Jesus is the kind of friend that does not abandon his beloved to the grave, but that he is resurrection and he is life. And that to be joined with him by faith is to be joined to the very power of life itself. It's to be joined to the power of resurrection. What Martha had to come to realize that she didn't yet know is that in Christ, the resurrection isn't something someday way off there. It's in a person that's come near to us that we can know, that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can experience. That to be in Christ is to be in life. Leslie Newbegin, who was a a missionary to India, described this passage this way. The prospect of universal resurrection on the last day is very cold comfort. She must learn, and Jesus must now show her, that the last day has already dawned. Jesus is himself in his own person, the eschaton, the last day. The end as he was at the beginning. Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Jesus is himself the presence of the life, which is God's gift beyond death. To be bound to Jesus by faith is to share already now the life which is beyond death. To be bound to Jesus by faith is to experience even now, even in this life, resurrection life. Life that goes from death and diminishment to life and abundance. I remembered and tasted this life again just this week. I was, uh, this is a bad idea. I was writing my sermon this week and I was at one of my favorite coffee shops I'll go to write at. And I went and I thought, oh, I'll look at my notes from the last time I preached this sermon. From the last time I preached John 11. So I type into my computer, John 11, dad's funeral service pops up. And right there in the middle of that coffee shop, I started to weep. Uh, remembering that moment. But then, right there, in the middle of that coffee shop, people all around, people wondering who's the weird guy, I experienced again the fresh remembrance that no, 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 to be bound to Jesus is to be bound to life. That my dad had hope, I have hope, we all have hope. Because Jesus is resurrection and he is life. And so, Jesus then says, after saying I am the resurrection and the life, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
That for the friends of Jesus, that resurrection life isn't something to be put off into the future, but that it's found in a relationship here, living in the present with the person of Jesus. Do you believe this? And this is ultimately the question that, that Jesus poses to each and every one of us. Right? Do you believe this? Do you believe not just that I'm a teacher, not just that I'm a wise person, not just that I offer some help that might be helpful to you in your life, but do you believe that I am life? That in me is the power to go from death to life. In me is the power to abide and to, to flourish in this life and forever through the resurrection. Do you believe this? And she, in one of the great statements of faith, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I love that she says this before Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Before Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and she receives her brother back, she says, yes, Lord, you are the Christ. I don't know why you weren't here. I don't know what you're going to do now that you are here but you are the Christ. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are our hope. You are resurrection and you are life. So we're going to stop there in the text and we're going to look at it again next week. But a couple of things uh, that I want us to think about for our own lives out of this. First is to consider that Christ here and now really is your life. That your life, your flourishing, your abundance doesn't consist of the quality of your friendships, your relationships, your possessions, your success at work, the health and happiness of your family. But if you are in Christ, Christ is your life. Christ is the one who gives your life meaning and purpose and significance. But the way that the Apostle Paul says it, that is that if you're in Christ, no matter what's happening in this life, he says, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we can be renewed day by day. Right, there was a movie that was made a number of years ago, not a very good one, um, called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Right, you might, have, might remember this movie. It was about, uh, uh, it had Brad Pitt in it, and he was, it's the story of a guy who was born an old man, so he's a little old baby, it's creepy looking. <laughs> and then as he gets old, as everybody else around him gets older, he gets younger. Right, as everyone else around him wastes away and dies, he grows into young, being younger, and then eventually he turns into Brad Pitt, which is, you know, great for him. Um, but so as, as everybody else is weakening, decaying, and dying, he's getting stronger and more vital and more vibrant. And that's what Paul's saying is the truth, the reality of the church, is that though the rest of the world around us is growing weaker and dying, though the world is afflicted by sin and violence and death and decay, though even our own bodies waste away and die, that inwardly we're not moving from life to death, we're moving from death to life. Inwardly, we are only getting more stronger, more, more strong, more vibrant, more alive than we were. To be joined to Christ is to be in the process of moving from death to life. And then one day, just as certainly as he raised Lazarus on that day, he will raise each and every one of us. Just as Lazarus heard from his tomb, Lazarus come out, so you and I will hear our names called and we will walk out whole and made new. And this gives us phenomenal hope in the midst of this life where, with all of its inevitable disappointments and pains. You know, this life, as you think about 2018, here's an upper for you. It's going to disappoint you. 
I don't know what you're hoping it's going to be. I don't know what you're hoping it's going to bring. It's not. It might bring some of it, right? We all have things we're looking forward to that maybe some of it, you'll taste some of it. But really, at the end of the day, our lives, none of us will ever be the people we want to be. I'm never going to be as skinny as I wish I was. I'm never going to be the husband or the father that I intend to be. I'm never going to be the pastor that I promised to be when I was ordained. Each and every one of us, in a thousand ways, large and small, are not going to be who we wish we could be. That's not to say that our lives aren't going to be full, that they're not, they're, we're not going to contribute some good, right? It's not going to say that I'm doomed to be a miserable father or husband, a terrible, faithless pastor. It just means that we're always going to fall just a little bit short of what we had hoped we could have been. And the hope of the resurrection is that one day all of that gets remade. All of the broken bits of it get taken up and you get made whole. You get made, remade into who Jesus created you to be. Anton Bruckner uh, was a 19th century composer and a brilliant and prodigiously gifted man. And I'm no great music scholar, uh, but those who are would say that he struggled for most of his life to create a symphony, to create a work uh, that really and truly lived up to his giftedness, right? That really did cash in on all of this incredible ability that he had. But then his ninth symphony, uh, which history looks back on as his opus, it was his, his masterwork. He died before he completed it. And so what we're left with is, is some great movements. Then the final and last movement of Bruckner's ninth, exists only in great, brilliant fragments that are not yet woven together into a whole, that are not yet put together into all that the symphony could be. David Bentley Hart, uh, Orthodox theologian, wrote of Bruckner, and I love this. Each of our lives is an opus imperfectum, an incomplete, imperfect opus, an unfinished masterpiece which within its own terms must in some sense end largely thwarted and unrealized. But we may truly hope that in the light of eternity, all the scattered and incomplete truths that time contains will be gathered up into a final truth and everything lost that is worth finding and everything broken that is worth mending will be restored. And all of it will finally be brought to a consummation that fulfills but also immeasurably surpasses the work that we have always only begun. One day Jesus will take everything that's broken, everything that's, that's less than whole, and mend it, put it back together, and restore us with his whole world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that apart from you, we are as dead as Lazarus in the grave. Apart from you breathing new life into our souls and into our bodies, we are without hope. We confess that our hope uh, is often as imperfect and as bitter as Martha's. Half believing and half demanding that you do things differently. Lord Jesus, help us to submit our lives to your care. To submit uh, our souls to your shepherding. To believe and to find our value and our worth in knowing that we are yours that we are your beloved and to trust that you hold us with such an unshakable grip 
that the sin and suffering of this life, even death itself, will not ultimately separate us from your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.